This sermon was preached by Pastor Tim Barone at Holy Cross Lutheran Church. Our reading for today is from Luke chapter 15, the familiar story of the prodigal son. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided the property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine across arose in that country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this son, this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry. And refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Well, you hear these um, wonderfully familiar words of Jesus with this prodigal son. One of the things that I think we should always wonder at is just how masterful of a storyteller Jesus is and how he uses uh, simple, 
uh, stories like this one to draw out really deep truths that really don't get old. You know, as many times as I've, I've read this and even preached on it, there's just always more uh, to find and discover in this text. Today, we're really going to focus on the first half of this, uh, which is the reconciliation with the father to the younger son. And we're going to see some things about our own sin, what happens when sin takes hold of us, how the Spirit pursues us, and also about the nature of the reconciliation that, that God the Father wants with us. It's important, I think, uh, to know the, the context of this sermon. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus begins to preach a series of parables all about welcoming people back and finding the lost. And he's doing this in response to what's happening in his ministry. And so he's telling these parables, especially to the Pharisees and the leaders of the Jewish people who don't like one particular thing about Jesus's ministry. And we find that in the beginning of this chapter. In the beginning of Luke chapter 15, we see the issue that Jesus is preaching to. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so this is the context that he's preaching into. There's two groups of people. There's the sinners, the tax collectors, the outsiders, the Gentiles, probably. And then there's those insiders, those people who know God, know his ways, and purport to follow his ways. And so he preaches this in order to reconcile both of those groups to himself. And this is why he preaches this, um, this sermon, this parable. Today we're going to use this image to think about um, this parable that Jesus teaches us. This is by an uh, artist named Edward uh, Royas. And he gave me permission to use this image uh, for our time today. We'll kind of look at different aspects of this picture as it shows us this parable of Jesus. But you can see the prodigal son heading home. You can see different details, but you can see he's coming away from uh, death. He's coming away from uh, a, a land of death and destruction uh, and pain and sorrow and toward the home that he has known, towards his father who runs to him uh, in the background. Let's look again at, at this text and, and the parable that Jesus teaches us today. Uh, in the beginning, Jesus says, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. So this is the, the setup for this. And here, this is particularly um, a, an ugly thing for him to do. Basically, the son is wanting the father to be dead already. Because he's saying, I, I want your stuff, I want what's coming to, to me, but generally that doesn't get passed down until the father dies, and so he's demanding that now. And this isn't like, in our, in our time, a lot of times we, our inheritance as we hand on it is cash or money, but in this time it's likely property, it's likely the land. And so the son wants the land that the father is still farming still working on. He wants it now, today. This is offensive to the father, 
but it also would have been extremely offensive to the older brother, who probably stood to inherit before he did, and also to the rest of the community, if you think about it, because all of a sudden, uh, this kid's going to just take this successful farmland, this successful workland, and who knows what he's going to do with it. And so he asks for the father's inheritance now, and he wants the father to be dead already so he can do what he wants with this. And so this would have broken the father's heart, would have broken the brother's heart and made him angry, no wonder, and also would have angered the community that saw what was happening. Uh, And so he does this anyway. He asks for the father's property, and what's amazing is that the father actually gives it to him. He says, okay, it's yours. But I think this is a pretty good way for us to think about sin. And one of the things I've found over the years is sin is a word that almost has no meaning. You notice that? You can say the word sin, but it really doesn't mean much. Um, it's hard to get at what sin actually is. Uh, We have to be more specific in order to understand what it's actually doing in our lives because it's such a generic and almost overused term. But this is a good picture of sin for us. This is what Adam and Eve did when when God was in uh, the the garden with them. Basically, they said, God, we want to cut you out of the picture, So we can do what we want with your creation. And this is the same kind of thing that we do as well when we sin. Basically, we're saying, God, I want you out of the picture so that I can do what I want with your creation. I'm going to take your things and spend them how I want and not think about you. I don't want you to be uh, the Lord of this creation I think one of the ways that this shows up in our lives that you might be able to recognize is when we really uh, separate all these different types of, of our life. We, we kind of segregate the, the sections of our life and partition them. And so we have kind of this one part of our life. Maybe we have a life with God in the church where we have a certain group of friends, certain way of talking We have kind of like our hobby life, which is over here, and no one really gets to touch that. We have our work life, and maybe we have a different set of friends, a different set of language in our work life. We have what we do with our money, and that's our little sandcastle. You know, we keep it over here. It doesn't really have to do with other people. Uh, we have our romantic life, that's over here, and, and we, kinda, we want our little areas of life to be separate so that we can maintain an illusion of control over them. But it gets really uncomfortable when we understand that God is sovereign over all aspects of our life, our, our money, our time, our bodies, our hobbies, where we go, who we speak to. That makes it difficult for us. And so we seek to partition our lives in certain ways so that we can keep up this illusion that we have control. We cut God out of certain aspects of our lives so that we can say, at least I'm sovereign of this part of my life. And this is kind of what the, the younger son is doing. God, I don't want you in this aspect of my life. 
I don't want you to have control over this. I want what's coming to me, and I want you to be dead or out of the picture. And this is how we can sin against the Lord, too. It's a first article, or it's a first commandment issue. It's a heart issue. And so we can kind of examine ourselves and think, is, Lord, is there any place in my life where I just don't want you to be? I don't want you to be there. I don't want you to have control of that part of my days or my hours or my energy. Uh, we can try to cut our God out of that section of our life. And this is what sin is. It creates that relational rift with God as we push him away and don't let him be the rightful God that he is over all things. It causes us to be alienated from him and alienated from those that we harm and even alienated from ourselves. And yet here in this story, uh, the father gives his possession away. He says, okay, he gives his son his property. He says, okay, you can have it. And the older son, too, has, just has to deal with this. But he, he allows the younger son to have his way. So pretty amazing. Soon after that, the son would have had to sell it at a, a short sale, right? Sell the property so he can spend it how he wants. So all of a sudden, he probably has to bring some outsider into the community who's willing to buy this land, even though it's, it's not a, a good look for the family. So some outsider now owns a plot of land right in the middle of the community, but he does it anyway, takes, takes the proceeds and goes, and this is when he begins to have difficulty, right? And so it says in the parable that as he uh, goes, he squanders his property in reckless living, and he ends up spending everything, and there's a severe famine that arose in the country, and then he begins to be in need, and so he goes and hires himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And this is kind of one of the turning points in the story when it says he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. So in contrast to the father, what did the father give him? Everything. His father gave him his inheritance, gave him everything, and before that was already uh, giving him all things. But now he goes into this foreign territory, people he doesn't, he doesn't know. He has to hire himself out to them instead of working alongside them. And no one gives him anything. There's no compassion. There's no interest. And so he begins to suffer. And I think this can help us as we think about our own lives with God as well and the effects of sin in our world and in our lives. It looks like this. When we have cut ourselves off from God or our sin has alienated us from the living God, we inevitably begin to suffer in different ways. We become desperate for the true love that we once knew. We understand that death is near. We're tossed to the machine of this world that cares nothing for us, but rather what it can extract from us. And so I like in this picture, we see this kind of industrial backdrop, people crammed into a small area of living, and the symbol of death is there. So often, uh, we don't come to our senses without suffering. 
Um, C.S. Lewis says that our God whispers to us in our pleasures, but he shouts to the world in our pains. That it's very difficult for people who really have everything they want. They have healthy bodies. They have enough money. They have good relationships. It's very difficult for people who have kind of checked all of those boxes to really feel like they're in need. But so often when we begin to suffer or struggle, or when we really have come into hard times or difficulty or or problems that are far too big for us, those are the people who are ready to hear the gospel. You know, when we pastors, when we preach at weddings, people maybe aren't ready to hear the gospel at a wedding, even though the, the gospel is there and it's certainly joyful. But people have kind of checked all the boxes in that moment, haven't they? The future looks bright. It's good. Uh, Things are looking up. Everyone feels blessed and happy, hopefully. So there's, there's joy in the air, but maybe we're not really keenly aware of our need for a Savior. But when there's a funeral, people are eager to hear the gospel. Because the law has been preached in their midst. The symbol of death in the room causes people to be aware of their need. And so they're ready to hear, is there hope? Is there something that can save in this moment when I feel the depth of my need? This is when often the Holy Spirit might grab people. And this is often why those who come to hear the gospel are those who are sick, are those who are poor, are those who are wretched. These are the ones who are attracted to Jesus as he calls out, come to me and I will bear your burdens and I will give you an easy yoke. It's suffering that often causes us to become awake to our need. And this is a good way for us to think about the work of the Holy Spirit. Here in this image, we see this dove hovering over the shoulder of the prodigal son. It's this dove that's uh, pushing him forward over to his father. He reminds the son, don't you remember how good it was with the father? Now that you see great suffering, you see your need, you see the alternative of serving a master that is not good and cares nothing for you, don't you remember what you used to have. And so this is the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. So often when our sin drives us finally to despair, it's the Holy Spirit who says, don't you remember how good your father is? Maybe he'll take you back. Maybe he will forgive. Maybe he'll continue to be merciful to you. Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the spirit of truth. And so often this spirit works on us when we finally see the realities of our sin. When we finally know how deep and dark they are. And we finally see our mistake maybe for the first time. This is the work of the spirit in our hearts. Apart from the spirit, we'll never admit that we had anything to do with it. We'll always be right. But the spirit brings us to truth. And so, so it was with this young man in the parable It says in verse 17, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. 
I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Can you read this with me? Treat me as one of your hired servants. I want you to focus on this, this little um, phrase at the end here. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Because I think he doesn't quite understand the father's heart for reconciliation yet. He understands he's in trouble, doesn't he? Well, he's going to eat the pig food. He understands that's not great. He remembers the bread that he used to have. He remembers the goodness of his father. And he says, you know what? Why would I just die here? That's not a good solution. And so I'm going to go home. And I'm going to try to save face. This is what I think he's doing. He comes to the truth of his predicament. But he's looking for a way out. He wants to make up for his transgression. He doesn't want to die. And so he says, you know what? I'll go home. I'll probably be humbled. People will probably talk. But you know what? I'll do what's right and I'll work my way out of this debt. And so he's hoping that when he goes home, his dad, who's a good man, will hire him on, bring him into his service, and maybe after 10, 20 years of labor as a hired servant, He'll free himself of his transgression to the community, to the father, and to the older brother. I mean, it's not the best situation, but at least he's not going to die in a pig's trough. You see it? So that's what he's thinking. And think about this. The audience that's hearing this parable from Jesus, I think they like this solution. This is a good solution for them. Yeah, the son did something wrong. Completely inappropriate. He messed up. The father, he should be merciful here and bring him back. But you know what? The son's going to have to prove himself. He's never really going to get all the way back to square one. Uh, But he will be able to do what's right and work it off. They probably like this idea. This is a good Jewish answer to the solution where the father appears merciful, but the son kind of gets what he deserves. That he's downgraded, he's no longer a son, but he's doing what's possibly right. And so here's something interesting for us today, that we might also have this idea about our God and about the church even as well. That we might think, you know, someone has fallen into addiction among us, or they've made a, a very serious mistake in their marriage Or they've been caught in some financial foolishness, some financial ruin. Or they've simply despised God's words and sacraments for a long, long time. And now they want to come back to the people of God. Right? How should we act to them? Well, of course, we should welcome them back. Because we all believe in second chances. But you know what? We're going to put them on probation for a while. We're going to kind of put them in that middle zone for a while and just see how they do. Let's see if they actually amend their lives to any degree. Let's see if they might be able to prove themselves and then they'll be fully accepted. In fact, it's very natural for us to think of ourselves in this way too with our relationship with God. Maybe we're the ones who've fallen into addiction 
Maybe we are the ones who've made a serious mistake in our marriage or our relationships. Maybe we have been caught in financial foolishness, or we have been the ones to despise God's words, his people, his sacraments for many, many years. And we think, I'm not worthy to be a son. I'm not worthy to be a daughter, and I would never assume on God, but I recognize that I was the problem. It was me and myself and I, and so I will go and make it up to him. I'll put in my time. I'll take my lumps. I'll do what's right, and eventually God will acknowledge my sincere efforts, and that will be good enough. I feel like this is a very Nebraska thing to think, isn't it? I'll make it up. Look at the father. Look at his response. While he's still a long way off, he sees the son and he feels compassion. He runs, he embraces, and he kissed him. Do you think there's going to be any servitude here? Is that what the father's interested in? I don't think so. With this image of the father running, all of the defenses of the young man fall away. The father's not interested in his servitude. He was never even interested, really, in the money. And it's not money or work that's going to fix it. The father is interested in the heart of his son. The father is interested in his heart being reconciled to his son. And so he falls on him. He embraces him. He kisses him. This is what our God is all about. The younger son, he no longer has a fallback plan. He never has a plan to work off the debt. All of those illusions disappear as the father demonstrates his love for him. And this is something that perfectly illustrates one of the most mind-changing things that we need to understand about God's mercy. It's that God's kindness leads us to repentance. True repentance. Yes, we have uh, truth smacking us around sometimes. We have the Holy Spirit showing us the truth we have the reality that we're the, the problem. We're the ones who've messed up. That we're the ones who need to change. But it's one thing for us to desire to pay God off by loyal servitude. And it's a completely different thing to realize that there is absolutely nothing that we could do, but that he has done all things for us. You see, when we try to pay God off, we're holding for ourselves at least a little bit of control. At least we're in control to a small degree. Here the son knows he's not in control of this situation. Not at all. Instead, he realizes there's nothing that he could do to reconcile the situation. Not a hundred years of his work would do what is necessary to change hearts and to reconcile his relationship with his father. And so all of his excuses go away. This is what we need to hear today too, 
as we consider uh, what's happening uh, with our sin. Look at what the son says. He says, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Notice he doesn't even bring up the idea of paying his father off. He knows that's not going to work at all. And neither will it work with us. There's no more thing that we can do to reconcile to God than this son could do. Instead, it's all and always been in God's hands. It's always been his power to reconcile with us. And this is exactly what he's done in the person of Jesus. That when he sees us in our sin, he doesn't actually call us into servitude so that we can pay our way out of our debt, but rather he lavishly gives us Jesus and pours out his mercy upon us. Uh, When Jesus was about to be crucified, he said, when I am lifted up, then you will truly know that I am he. Jesus says we'll recognize God in him when he's crucified for us. Then we'll see who God truly is. When God makes up our relationship and reconciles with us, for us, in the person of Jesus, that's when we get to see who he truly is. He is the father running with tears for his children. So what it says in Colossians chapter 1, it says, You who are once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is the heart of God for us. And we see this in this image too. What can bring us back into the Father's heart? What can truly reconcile us to him? It's only the cross of Christ. It's only his blood that can turn the Father's heart towards us and our hearts toward the Father. And it's the kindness that we see in the blood of Jesus that actually changes our hearts. When we realize we don't have to be indentured servants to God, but rather we can confess all things freely because Jesus has paid for all of our sins. This is what causes people to truly repent from the heart is when we see God's kindness. Our sins, they lose their charm over us when we see the charm of God's mercy in our lives. It's this reconciling mercy that was bringing the tax collectors and sinners to Jesus. They recognized that Jesus wanted their hearts not for them to make up for their mistakes. It's this reconciling mercy that made the love swell up in the sinful woman's heart. You remember that story. As she poured out the perfume on Jesus' feet and dried it with her hair and her tears. This is what draws sinners to the one true God, is his kindness and his mercy, his willingness to reconcile with our hearts. And it's this that calls to each one of us today. But this story doesn't end here. The father then, not only does he reconcile with the son, calling him in, his son once again into sonship and not servitude, but also he continues to reconcile 
the son with the rest of the community. Look what the father does. He says, the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe. Put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. The father, after reconciling with the son, the son's heart melted before him. The father then makes it public. That's what's happening here. That he covers the son in his robe. He says, this is once again a son. He puts a ring of authority on his finger and shoes on his feet. And he kills the fattened calf. Why? Why would he need that much food? Because he's going to celebrate with the entire community. And he's going to recognize this son's sonship publicly. Because the son not only sinned against the father, but against the older son and the rest of the community too. But the father will pay for that as well. Imagine what it would be if that hadn't happened. The son, yes, reconciled to the father, but then there's all these awkward rumors and conversations behind his back as he is not reconciled yet to the rest of the community. There's questions about why this imposter is back. But the father will spend his own money and his own time making sure that the son is also reconciled to the rest of the people he has harmed. And so it is with us as well. When we are reconciled to the father, he reconciles publicly with us so that the rest of the world knows that we belong to him as a son or as a daughter. Why are baptisms public and not private. It's so that God can say, this one's reconciled, this one's mine. This one bears my name, and all should know that this is a son, this is a daughter. Why do we come around the table so often? It's because we get to eat at the table the feast of reconciliation so that everyone can see we are together with God. That we are ones who have been brought from death to life. That we are ones who have been reconciled with the Father. And we get to eat at his table. You don't eat at table with your enemies, do you? You eat at table with your family. We are the family of God around his table. Why does Jesus command the church and command you and me To forgive those who repent. It's so that the community itself would embrace sinners. So that those who come and are reconciled with the living God would also be reconciled to each member of the community. That we would learn to live in peace under the mercy of God. In the feast of the reconciled people. This is uh, one of the most beautiful pictures of reconciliation that we have in the Bible. It shows us the heart of God desiring for us to be not only indentured servants, but also those who eat and drink with him. Those who are reconciled fully in our hearts to our Heavenly Father. And the reason for all of this, uh, I think we get at the end. This is what the end of this section of the parable says. You want to read this with me? 
For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This is why he's willing to go to the depths to forgive us and to reconcile with us. Because he knows what's at stake. What's at stake here between sinners and God is their very lives. And apart from reconciliation with the Heavenly Father, we have no life. And so he is willing to pardon all of our sins that he might sit with us and be reconciled with us. And this he has done for you in the person of Jesus. Let's pray. Oh God, we ask for strength to be able to comprehend just how much you love us and just how much you love this world. We see your kindness in the person of Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that you would uh, help us in our hearts to truly trust his kindness and your mercy, that we might be drawn into your family and drawn into reconciliation and drawn into true repentance. Lord God, we ask that your spirit would be with us so that we could walk in these ways as we are reconciled to you. May we also be reconciled to one another. We pray in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen.